Servant Songs, chapter 42 is one of the servant songs. I think you have about four of these in the Bible. They call servant songs. songs. Uh, and it says, Behold my servant whom I hold, mine elect in whom my soul delighted. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry nor lift up his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail, nor be discouraged, till he hath set judgment in the earth. And the isles shall wait for his law. Thus saith God the Lord. He that created the heavens and stretched them out, and he that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it, he that give it, break it, who he that give it breath unto the people upon it, and said to the said spirit to them that walk therein, I the Lord have called thee in righteousness, and I will hold thee with thine hand, and will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light unto the Gentiles. To open the eyes of the blind, to bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that in darkness out of the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give unto another, neither my praises to a graven image. I'm going to end there with the reading. But we, we must walk, learn to walk as servants of God. This here is talking about the Messiah, but... If you go on through the whole chapter, you'll see it seem to switch tenses and seem like it's talking about the children of Israel. And it seems like it's talking about, about another group here when it says in the 19th verse, Who is blind but my servant or deaf? So, but see as my messenger that I sent. Who is blind as he that is perfect and blind as the Lord's servant? Seeing many things, but thou observest not opening the ears, but he heareth not. The Lord is well pleased for his righteousness sake. He will magnify the Lord and make it honorable. There's a long way to go with the switch in those tenses of the word servant there, whether he was, seemed like in the beginning he's talking about Jesus as a messianic servant. As the servant of God, he had sent here, and we know he did a job, had a job to do. But to us, it's being created in the image and the likeness of Jesus Christ. We must learn to walk as a servant of God, as servants of God. That's what he recreated us for. When it says, uh, and he had created us for a purpose, when we're born again, that purpose is to do good works. But we must minister or be a servant then. We, we're, we learn that we're no more than a servant, a bond servant of Jesus Christ. I got it listed here, those servant songs. Songs, I said, Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, and 5 through 7. Uh, the 49th chapter, 1 through 6, the 50th chapter, 4 through 9. The 52nd chapter, verses 13 through the 12th verse of the 53rd chapter. A servant means one who's at another's. Another means a person at the disposal of another. And it's like Paul calls himself Jesus Christ's bondservant. 
the bond servant of Jesus Christ, and I see myself as a servant of the Lord. And remember at the baptism of Jesus Christ when he said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. In other words, we, we won't, he delight in the Lord. And I get that to, to another person in a few minutes. Well, maybe next teaching. But anyhow, we want to hear that said of us as he said of him. That's what we all strive to hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And we know he's, that Jesus had completed that job and he delight in him. And he had came to do a work and as a servant he did right and he worked in righteousness. And a servant is he, he's a worker who belongs to the master and we know Christ was the only begotten son of God. And in religious usage it appears as the humble man's description of himself in the presence of God. Uh, Exodus 4.10, Psalms 119 and 17. Psalms 143 and 12. Now, how did Jesus fulfill the Passover requirements? Well, he ate the Passover with his disciples at the beginning of the first of the first month. Now, not saying what all they ate at that time or whatever. Uh, you remember as he reenacted that at the Last Supper when he reenacted that, that and we know they wasn't eating lamb they, well they could have eaten lamb or whatever but his disciples was the bread and wine and after the, they had finished eating as a servant or whatever he began to wash his disciples feet and he told us that he didn't come to minister, be ministered to but to minister and that's what we should do, minister to one another. And he said he set the example of humble service as well as forgiving others because cleansing is a symbol, symbolic of forgiveness. Most importantly, it was his sinless blood that was shed for us on the Passover day that created that, that servant mentality of that we ourselves reenact to become as he was and his image and his likeness. So we must be servants and as bond servants we strive to hear God says, well done my good and faithful servant and that we should serve God. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, Philippians 2, uh, second chapter 3 through the 7 verse says, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men." The living version reads, Don't be selfish. Don't live to make a good impression on others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't just think about your own affairs, but be interested in others too and in what they are doing. So what a servant is doing is more or less 
trying to do what is pleasing unto his masters or trying to please someone else and not itself. And I think that's what we see a lot in this culture. Self-service, a self-aggrandizement, self-pleasure and one pleasure in one's own self. The attitude, too, that Jesus showed in washing his disciples' feet is the same attitude that enabled him to give up the power and glory of being like God and become a man. So if he laid aside his divinity, he laid aside the divinity as being God, and he took upon himself a form of a servant. And I don't want to get too far off in the discussion, but he was a man. He he was not just made, but he was a man. He A lot of people say, well, he was the God man. He was God, but... I don't know, I don't want to get into too far into that discussion or whatever. But if he was God-man and he was the God-man or whatever, I don't know if that would be a good example to us or whatever because he would have overcome as God and we couldn't do that. But as a man, he walked as a man and that's the way we should walk as obedience to God as men. And we can do that and that's why we have to do as he did because he did it as a man. If he had to did it as a God, we couldn't do that if he was God doing it. But as a man, that's why it says he humbled himself and took on the form of a servant. So we have to have that same mind in us that we're to please God and we're not trying to build up a reputation. And that's what a lot of people in this day and age are. And especially with Facebook and all of the social media, they always putting themselves on there and YouTube, uh, different things, and taking selfies. And it's about their reputation of who they are. But Christ didn't make himself up a reputation or whatever. He went around serving God and doing good and helping others. We see here that our Creator, the Almighty God, is first and foremost a servant. So Jesus Christ describes himself, and he's a servant of God, and that's what he came to do, and that's what we should be about. When we're born again, when we learn, that's when we begin to serve others and by serving, serving God, by serving others. He is willing to serve his own servants. As I said, he sat down and washed his disciples' feet. He washed their feet. When we come to the point that we are able to do everything in our attitude of service and humility, we are truly following Christ. And if we could have that attitude now, in other words, with that same mind that he had, that mindset of service and humility. The Phillips transition, if I don't know how many of y'all didn't heard of Phillips and the Moffat translations, I know it's a popular version, the NIV and the Living and uh, the Amplified, but Phillips, uh, J.B. Phillips, his renders, his version renders this, for he who had always been God by nature did not cling to his privileges as God's equal, but stripped himself of every advantage by consenting to be a slave by nature and being born a man. That's a close translation there. He laid aside this deity of who he was, the only begotten Son of God. And he laid that aside to become a man. And 
and so he was subject to all the temptations and everything that men were actually subject to. And that shows us that if we have faith and obey God, we can do as he did. And the Spirit came upon him. That's why if we go back and read that uh, first verse, it says, Behold my servant, and whom I uphold. In other words, he's upholding just like we can't do this to God starts upholding us as he told his disciples and the, 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 the apostles in the New Testament when he says, go back and tarry from Galilee until you be endued with power up on high. Until we endued with that supernatural power now, until we have the Holy Spirit. to we receive the Holy Ghost, we can't accomplish this that he's not upholding us that at that time, we're trying to accomplish it in our own flesh or whatever. He says, mine elect. Now, we know we become elect when he chooses us or calls us and bursts us into the body of Christ. He says, whom my soul delighted. Now, I don't know if we can get that position or whatever what it says, of whom my soul delighted in. I have put my spirit upon him and he shall bring forth my judgment to the Gentiles. Now, when he gives us of his spirit, the power of that anointing to go out and preach the word of God, making disciples, that's when we are to carry it to all nations, which is the Gentiles, making disciples of all men. The Mofax translation translates that, though he was divine by nature, he did not set store upon equality with God, but emptied himself by taking the nature of a servant, both in human guise and appearing in human form. Now, among the agnostics and the Gnostics, Gnosticism, there's a lot of teaching about human form and whether the body or flesh is is evil or whatever, but we don't want that would address that a little bit more. But this was actually him becoming incarnate. In other words, in a body, in a real earthly body as a man, which was subject that could have been killed or died. All of the things that we can face, he faced. That's why he says... He knows what we're going through because as a man, he went through all these things himself. Hunger and all of the rest of the things and tiredness. Phillips 2 and Philippians 2 and 7, the clause, he made himself of no reputations, literally reads, he emptied himself. Instead of asserting his rights to the expression of his essence of deity, and we talked about essence last week a couple of weeks ago essence is what something really is the core of it he waived his rights and relinquished them in other words he gave them up he set them aside he didn't have that that privilege anymore he set it aside nobody took it but he laid that aside compared to the fullness of God he must indeed have felt empty once he gave up the form of God and took the form of a man. The grammatical structure of the sentence demands that the taking the form of a servant preceded, well, let me not get too far off into that, but he took the form of a servant. In other words, he became man. Okay, we, we, we realize that, that Jesus Christ 
was a man, and I'm not saying God man, but he was born of a woman, so he had everything that he was human in that sense. So he could have get hurt, he could have gotten hurt. All of the things could have happened to him that happened to us because if he was God man and couldn't have been killed and these things couldn't have happened, well it wouldn't have actually been a temptation to him, would it? If he could if he could have been couldn't have been stoned to death, if he couldn't have hungered, if he couldn't have if all of these things couldn't have happened to him, where was the temptation in it? Where was the challenge in it? You know, if, if that couldn't have happened to him. Remember, form is the outward expression of the inner nature. Form is the outward expression of the inner nature. It's what the essence is in the inside, in the interior. The sentence, though, indicates an exchange of such an expression. Therefore, being a servant was not something of its inner nature that had previously been expressed. He was God, but his inner nature, he was deity. He was, all he was was deity. He was begotten of God. He was taken from God. So that nature is no longer there. That's what he laid aside. And so being born of a woman, he picked up a human nature. Are you with me here? But he had the spirit upon him, the spirit without measure. An event in the life of Jesus may help explain the expression, uh, uh, the exchange of expression. Uh, We want to look at, you can look at it at home in your notes or whatever, I have it. In the transfiguration when Jesus was transformed and changed at Matthew 17, 1 through 5, Mark 9, 2 through 7. You remember how he glowed or how they looked up on him? how he was in the transfiguration that was his essence that they were looking unto when Peter and John was looking at him Peter, James and John was looking unto him Luke write that his appearance was altered Luke 9 29 and Peter, James and John saw his glory now as they saw his glory you remember Moses couldn't look upon the glory of God but here it says Peter, James, and John, they had saw his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was changed from his normal human outward expression as a servant to the outward expression of his deity. And that's when Peter says, let us build three tabernacles here that they can dwell there or whatever. Uh, next, I don't know if I need to keep hammering that in to y'all. Not there. I think I've given you enough of that. Bond servant. The word bond servant. Paul uses that more than any other apostles, any of the other writers. The word bond servant. Luke 17 and 10 says, So likewise ye, when you shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say we are unprofitable servants, and we have done that which was our duty to do. So, uh, the Living Bible says, Just so if you merely obey me, you should not consider yourselves worthy of praise, for you have simply done your duty. So, we're doing 
what is required of us when we come into the come into the service of God. He says we can't do anything to put God in our service. In other words, we can't do beyond our duty to God to do. In other words, what we do here, what we do for God, it's what re- what's required of us. It's our job to do good. And you know what I tell you? To do good works. It's like I was saying in secular society. You don't get paid for not breaking the law. That's what you're supposed to do. It's not break the law. Right? You don't get a reward at the end of life for not going to jail or not killing somebody. You're not supposed to do those things. So the thing with God is after all we've done, that's why it says it can't be works when they say, hadn't we fed the needy? Hadn't we cast out devils in your name? Naming all the things that they had done in Jesus' name. Isn't that's what they require to do? So that's no reason for them to think that they should have admitted to the kingdom of God or to the kingdom of heaven. He says, I never knew you because they were doing things that were required of them anyhow. So works can't get gain us entrance. The only thing that gains us interest is being saved by faith. Is through grace by faith, right? So that's what gains us interest, but the works, that's what's required of you. And as servants, that's why I say people that don't know God's word can't really be pleasing to God because they don't know what they should be doing by God. It's, It's not writing it up on their laws or whatever. They've heard of things, but those same sick things in a secular society, kind of is what goes along with society. So being a servant of God means we should go beyond what secular society requires of us. In other words, society doesn't teach us to love our enemies. But God requires us to love our enemies. God requires different things. So if we are bond servant of God, we cannot no longer do the things to pleasing of us because our body no longer belongs to us. That's why it says present your body as a living sacrifice unto God because we are created to do good works. Our body is no longer our body. We can't do with our body what we want to do with it. It belongs to Christ. We belong to another. So, like I said, Paul said he was a bondservant. The lowly attitude of the servant is seen clearly in the word translated servant. And it is it is the Greek word doulos, meaning bondservant. Bondservant. During Christ's time, such a servant slave was under the complete authority of his master. We must make take this lowly position if we are going to serve our master well. That that's what you remember Jesus said, why call me? master if you're not going to do the things that I say do. There's a lot of people that call me Lord and do not what I say do. That's why at the end of time, as I keep reiterating, there'll be many calling to him and says, Lord, Lord. But everyone that calls him Lord shall not be saved. 
Because if he's your Lord and master, you should be doing what he asks you to do. Forsaking yourselves, the, the assembling of the, yourselves together is one of the things he asks you to do. Not to forsake the, the assembling together yourselves. Another thing that he requires is throughout the Bible, there's a lot that's required continuing in his word. It's required for us to do. Any of these things we don't do, we're lacking in those areas. We're not obedient servant. And he was obedient unto death. So if we have to be obedient to the every word of God, for, for to hear him says, well done, my good and faithful servant. We're trying to please God. We want our testimony. We want everything to be pleasing unto God, not pleasing unto man. Not what man says about us, but what does God say about us? Are we faithful unto God? Our service will always fall, fall short of the suffering and sacrifice Jesus received while in, in the flesh and earth. None of us could do or go through or accomplish as much as he did, but we are to try to imitate that. We are to walk in that, and God's not going to require more of us than we can do. He's not going to lay any burden upon us we can't bear. Therefore, there's no such thing as an excess of earned credit in us. Even after serving our best as what the Master requires, we are still unprofitable servants in comparison to Christ. If we compare ourselves, and that's why it says, don't compare yourselves to men. Be in comparison to Christ and see how far short you fall. Because if we compare ourselves to other men, We'll be like the Pharisee who says, I'm much better than this guy, this publican, that I pray twice a week, I do this and I do that. Well, okay, that's comparison to yourself to another man, but we shouldn't compare ourselves to one another. How do you stack up to Christ? That same mind that was in Christ should be in us. That's the mindset we're shooting for. That's, that's where we need to be at. After performing our duty perfectly, we still short. We still fall short of God. How many times after doing everything that you can, you still feel that you not ha haven't done enough for God? You fe still feel that you're not as good as you should be. Um, many a time crying in prayer and saying, Lord, I just can't do enough. I can't feel that I've done enough for you. How much can we do for God? We cannot build anything on our own effort, and that's what a majority of the people are doing, looking to what their own effort does. And he says that he's going to give it us of his spirit. We have to do this in the spirit. The spirit enables us to do that. That's why I say we have to see ourselves as insignificant and is weak and can do nothing of ourselves requiring Christ to help us do all that we do. We have to seek union with him, his enabling of us. If we expect thanks and rewards for fulfilling the minimum requirements of work, our thoughts are not on the duty but on what we may gain. Are we, are we looking for the minimum, you know, a lot of people, I went to church this week, you know, I, I did this, you know, I said my prayer, I did this, well, 
Well, those are, are the, the minimum thing you can do. I don't think you can list all you've done that where you can say, oh, man, you did more than what you should have done. You know, you can't say, I've served Christ all my life. Well, you should have served him. I don't think we could ever get ahead of the curve on serving God. Christ expects every church member to do his duty in a mind and will unified with his. His emphasis on humility is a hard lesson for those who will not serve unless given recognition, honor, and position. And some people, unless you patent them and keep bringing up to them how well they're doing, uh, uh, giving them some kind of recognition in the church, you know, a lot of people do things for recognition for hearing their name called or for the honor that's involved in it or whatever. But can you just keep your head down and do things and do for God because why? You're a servant of God. So you're not worried about man rewarding you or telling you well done. Jesus Christ is the reward you. And if you start keeping your head down and pleasing God, not looking for man to say you did this, a lot of people say, well, you didn't even say this and that. Okay. They didn't say it, but God's saying it. You've done it for God that one day God's going to pay you for all you've done. If you have that mentality that you're working for God and you're not looking for a return in this life, that you're not doing it for these sake, and uh, I don't want to be hypocritical in this or whatever, but we know that you have sometimes monetary things come in this life or whatever, but what was the motivation for you doing what you were doing? It Was you doing it because in a servant mentality? Because now if you're doing it and you're not a servant of God, that's kind of hard because if you're outside of God, it has to be from some other exterior thing. Uh, are you understanding what I'm saying? If you're not a child of God doing it and that God's driving you and your motivating purpose for doing it, then you have a problem. Well, we have a problem there. Uh, in reality, much of the service we perform for Him is humbling and obscure by the world's standard. Now, this is a point here that I need to kind of be easy on that. Uh, in how can I say this point here have you ever done something let me come back to that point Christians work must be done in faith according to James 2.20 you know and that's what you have to do that's why I say you have to develop that mindset of Christ that it has to be faith that God gave you to the mind to do this and that's where your belief system or the structure of your belief system backs up your works. Your work is backed up. That's how your faith is seen is through your works because your belief system, your nature is that you're doing it just because you like doing good for God that God says for you to do this. Not because you're saying you're a good person, because this is what's required of God. This is part of my nature as a child of God. Are, are we seeing what I'm saying? 
It's faith that you're doing this because you're a child of God. And that's the only thing that's enabling you to do that is that you're a child of God. That's the only thing that's enabling you to do that. And without that, there's maybe an inner wrestling with whether you should do it or not or whatever. And you have to silence that voice. It has to become part of your new nature. That's what you do because by faith we help establish the laws of God. And that is loving all men. Because if you do it with partiality now, let me show you the same thing. If you do it for your friends or someone, but you won't do it for your brother, or you won't do it for your enemy, it's not by faith. Because by faith, it shows no partiality. It shows no partiality. See, because you could be biased in what you're doing, and that's why... I tell you, against Christian nationality or whatever, because it puts you up against everybody else. And that's what I said, that you can't have Christian nationality because if you're the president of the United States or, or you're the leader of this nation, well, then you represent all members of that nation. In other words, you have to represent the homosexuals because they're a member of that nation. You can't exclude them from that nation. You have to represent the harlots, the, the abortionists. You have to represent the murderers and everybody. That's why God is merciful to even the murderers, right? Isn't God merciful to the child molesters? Isn't God? He doesn't show partiality. That's why it says even if a person's poor, you shouldn't show them partiality just because they're poor. Any type of partiality, you can't do the work of God. That's thus the servant mentality is that you working for God, and God works the judgment and justice is carried out. And this servant says he's not arrested; justice is carried out. In other words, he has to work in such a fashion that the judgment of God falls on the nation so you do good for all men. And, and so you can't get entangled in this world's affairs. Your work goes on for the kingdom of God to help establish the kingdom of God. Okay. The only way to obtain increased faith is for the working servant to manifest steadfast, persevering obedience grounded in humility with the help of the Holy Spirit. So that point, I can see now that I hit that point because Sister Harris really been amening me on that point there. That's, that's why your faith increases. That's the only way to have steadfast faith is to do it without partiality. That, that you keep working and have faith that you steadfast in that immovable and establishing the things of God because this is what God requires, and this is who I am. I'm a bond servant to Jesus Christ, so I can't serve unrighteousness. I can't be unrighteousness in this, and that's what we're created in righteousness after Christ Jesus. He gives. That's the only way we can do this, because he gives us his righteousness. He gives us his righteousness, and if you read this 42nd chapter, it's his righteousness. It is in the righteousness of that servant 
That's what that servant is looking at is righteousness. So you be you able to be merciful to those that no one else can show merciful to. Because why? Because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Faith is produced as a fruit of the Holy Spirit. So that's why I say, if that fruit, if that faith is increasing, it's growing, it's because you're fertilizing it. Because God has has put things, gave, given trials and tribulations, a different things that come up that season your faith. In other words, it happened, uh, something happened, to cause you to humble yourself. When you humble yourself, he gives you greater grace. It says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. In other words, you're asking God for grace to be able to bear up up on what you're going through. Sometimes he has to give you the grace to bear up under the suffering of the forbearing to that person that's getting on your last nerve. To provide the long suffering of to what's going on in your life. So as a servant of God, you yielding your members to righteousness for righteousness sake. Because this is the right thing to do. Now the world might not see it as the right thing to do. The world might see it differently. But you have to see it from the eyes of God or from the discerning of faith. Because you're trying to contend that the same mind is in you that was in Christ Jesus. Not the mind of the world. You can't follow the thinking. Let your mind be transformed or renewed in Christ Jesus. That's the mindset you have to develop for that faith to increase. A humble, obedient, serving attitude goes a long way to increase in faith and practice in true forgiveness. So looks like that can hit with y'all. I can feel sometime when things going forward. Now, you know, I think I've hold up just a second here. Wow, what did that do? From a leadership perspective and a parent's perspective, I'm just gonna leave this one on, on it and touch on it just slightly. Numbers twenty seven, one through eleven you'll hear of Zolophat's daughters. Zolophat had five daughters. I preached on Zolophat at Mr. Luther's funeral for his eulogy about Hobley and his daughters. They came to Moses, uh, and women in that society, in the Old Testament society, had some less rights than maybe a they put them on the level with a child or whatever during that time. And we noticed that women's rights and equality things coming up. And there was a vote last night in Kansas that passed the Kansas Constitution where they wrote it into their Constitution, wrote the abortion issue into their Constitution. Because I think what we're having uh, is society again looking at not equally protected women of the rights of the laws of, that are being did are not being construed properly to cover the women in the society the way it should and not addressing the ills and 
the thing with women, you know, uh, there was some cases that's coming up, but let me not digress too far. But this Zolophat in, in Numbers 27, 1 through 11, they came up to Moses and told Moses and asked Moses for an audience that their father didn't have any dependent, uh, any sons, and it was them that was left. And Moses uh, listened to what they were saying when these group of women came to him saying that their father had died without any sons and under the law of the time his daughters were left without an inheritance. Uh, and so Moses does three remarkable things here after appealing to God on this. He not only hears the appeals of these ladies, he humbly admits that he did not know the answer. He takes it to God, and God not only hears it, he gives the ladies more than what they asked for. As all they had asked for was the land, God says, in effect, not only can you have the land, but you have the right to pass it on as if it was Zolophad's son, and it came under their power completely, and he established it so that they wouldn't lose that. The point is that no leader under God can afford not to listen with fullest attention to the appeals of the lowly or to, or to the counsel of what the lowest among them are saying. That's why in some of your mega churches or some of the different organization or whatever, you have the ones that with the money or the power, the authority of making the laws and things, not listen to the voice of the whole people. And that's why I have, I don't know if they printed it out, that article that Justice Elena Kagan had spoke of about the Supreme Court delegitimizing itself. Here it is here. Justice Elena Keegan has a prescription for an ailing Supreme Court. Her and Chief Justice John Roberts see that the court's taking itself toward delegitimization. As the nation falls, as justice falls, and that's what God talks about it here. Justice not prevailing, but justice falling. And what has happened with Elena Kagan here, uh, and Zolophat, the women wasn't getting a fair shake. And, you know, I, like I said, I came up under the guise of a single mom, and, you know, my stepfather would be there sometime or whatever. They'd see my mother, my father as much or whatever, but my mother was the biggest influence on my life, and I, I saw and I see how this society has treated the women in society. And I think that's where what's bringing, what's going to be part of what pulls the nation down is that we have to be fair to all. And that's why, you know, you have to have the equalization with the women. And it says turn the hearts of the fathers to the children because I think parents has, have to also listen at their children, have to understand, you know, and since I have grandchildren and so forth now, you start to listen and see, Back, I can remember when I was coming up, and the child didn't have a voice. You just have to sit down and shut up and be quiet or whatever. But we see with God and with the way God treats us. One thing about being a good leader, you have to be a good listener also. So that's why whatever the smallest member in the church 
you have to be able to listen at those in lowly places also. That's to have a servant leadership mentality. And that's what Jesus did. He, he ate with the sinners and the Pharisees. Say, your master eat with sinners and everything. That's because the Pharisees and Sadducees thought they were above the sinners. Whereas Jesus ate with sinners. He ate with the lowly. You remember the woman that washed his feet and he said, they said, I wouldn't let that woman touch me or wash my feet or whatever. But Jesus said that would be a memorial unto her. See, as a servant, you have to be able to be around the lowliest of society and understand to have that to understand just like with God, that's how God treated us and that's how God sent his son as an example that dealt with, he didn't deal with, he wasn't around the Pharisees and I guess that's one of the reasons they rejected him because he didn't come up and sit, sit up in the most popular churches and the most popular organization. He went to the common man. See, if you're not driving some sort of car and working at a certain job, it's a lot of the mega churches and things you can't go to. You can't park your car in the front of it. Or you can't sit in the front of it in certain seats or even the funerals or the weddings they have, you you know, the pastor, the leader of the church can't operate on that level. He has some low-level servant he can send to do your wedding or funeral or whatever. He, All of the members just can't come to him, whereas that's what Jesus Christ did as, with his servant mentality of his. He opened up the veil so that each and every one of us, no matter how lowly we may appear to someone else or to ourselves, that we can boldly approach the throne of grace. We can boldly approach God. That we're all the same. We're all sons of God. We're all children of God. There's no male or female in Christ Jesus. Society, we say that, but are we actually doing that? Are, are men and women really, there's no difference in the two? That's a hypo that's hypocrisy if you're doing that. You can say it but not do it. That's why he says his their hearts are far from him. Bond slave. I was telling you about bond servant and bond slave here in the book of Revelation. First chapter, first and the second verse. It says, This book unveils some of the future activities soon to occur in the life of Jesus Christ. God permitted him to reveal these things to his servant John in a vision, and then an angel was sent from heaven to explain the vision's meaning. John wrote it all down, the words of God in Jesus Christ, and everything he saw and heard. That's the living Bible. And I told you that last week, to listen at that closely. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. John wasn't the revelator. John was given the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the unveiling of the divine mistress. Jesus Christ gave it to John, which God the Father had gave to Jesus Christ. God the Father gave it to Jesus Christ, and Jesus he gave it to Jesus Christ to show his bondservants, that is, the believers. And that's what we should be, is bondservants of Christ. That's why Jesus Christ reveals his will. He reveals the word of God to us. He reveals these things to us. So, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, and we're supposed to be his bond servants. 
That's why I say he reveals these things to his servants. So as you, your faith increase, as you increase as a servant of God, he's going to show you more and more. As you walk in his word and doer of his word, that's why it says ever increasing faith. He's not going to give you any more if you're not using that you already have. You get stronger by exercise of use. So if you're not doing the little things, you're not going to ever do the greater things. That's why he gave that one man that one talent, and he gave somebody else five talents and the other one two talents. Because why give the one talent guy that wasn't going to use it five talents if he wasn't going to use the one yet? <coughs> See, some people, that's why I say you're not exercising your faith. You're not stepping out on faith. If you're not stepping out on faith, how can your faith increase? You're not going to take greater chances. You're not going to believe God greater. It took Abraham some 30, 35 years to get to the point or where he completely trusted God to where he was ready to plunge the knife into his son Isaac because he knew through God's word and through walking with God that time that God had to raise him up because this was his only out. That if he killed Isaac, he knew God would raise him up because he had seen God over all these years perform. But he couldn't do it way back here before Isaac was born. Because Abraham's faith hadn't reached that point. How was Abraham's faith was? That he allowed Sarah to talk him in to going with Hagar, his bondservant. He allowed himself to go back and didn't trust God during the famine to take care of him. So is our faith getting greater and greater to where we stepping away from our relatives, family, and friends, and that which we know? Are we stepping in the unknown with God, increasing faith? See, because if you still with that weak, puny faith, you're not going to ever be able to speak to the mountains. You're not going to ever have the faith to be healed. How can you have the faith to be healed if you don't have faith to attend church? How can you have faith if you're scared to stand up for God? The Apostle John identifies himself as the human author and witness of the revelation three times in the first nine verses of this chapter. That's verse 1, 2 through 2, verse 4 and 9. He humbly calls himself God's servant. In other words, a doulos, a bondservant. Not even titling himself an apostle because you know he was an apostle. And Paul himself sometimes don't use that word apostle. Notice John, James, when he wrote the book of James, he didn't say that he was Jesus' brother. Jude didn't say he was Jesus' brother. You know, they, a lot of people love the name drop. But notice, go back and read the superscript of those books and they'll say a servant of God a servant of Jesus Christ we're servants and that's why he kept Mary on that level that she was like, like all of the rest of the women okay but the Catholic Church have deified Mary the only one we have is God that's Jesus Christ we can't serve but that one 
Other than that, it's idolatry. In verse 9, he adds that he is both your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. So he's a brother and a companion in tribulation. The same thing y'all going through is the same thing I went through. It's the same thing we all go through. We all have to realize that's why we don't lay nothing on nobody else because we have problems ourselves. We know how hard it is. And until you start identifying that with the, your fellow man or whatever, it says the Pharisees lay burdens on others that they don't bear. They lay loads on others that they don't want to carry themselves. He claims no special prominence or distinction in his own mind. He is just a regular guy and doing the same trials in his walk to the kingdom of God as any other Christian. And that's why I say as a, the pastor here, that's a position that I hold. But I'm just a sheep, just like all of the rest of the sheep. There's only one shepherd. There's only one shepherd. Now, a lot of men worship the preachers and the men nowadays and other images and idols. That's getting into idolatry. We only have one that we worship. The rest of us are servants of Jesus Christ. He's he's the chief of the Godhead. Everybody else, well, we're brothers or joint heirs with him, but we're servants of him. We're not joint heirs. We had that title that hadn't came. We're servants of God right now, servants of Jesus Christ. These few details are surprisingly more information than. John normally gives in all of his epistles and even in his gospel. Uh, traditionally, the book of Revelation has been ascribed to John, the apostle John. Uh, let's see, this book was written from Ephesus by John, uh, John, one of the apostles. Let's see, now, faithful servant, I'm, I'm going to hold, well, I'll see, can I finish this one? It might carry me a little while over. Faithful servants, Luke 7, 3-4. And when he had heard Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy, was, was worthy for whom he should do this, for he loved our nation, and he had built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou should enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither though I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. Now this is the faithful centurion. Remember the centurion? I said the centurion was very faithful, and this is the faithful servant. But notice, you need to go back and read. I'm going to try to break them down here. But notice the respect that these employees of the the servants of this centurion, this centurion had for him and how they spoke to Jesus Christ for him in his behalf. You can tell whether a person loved the person that they're working for or that they're serving and if whether that person is righteous and right with them or not. The centurion gives the messengers the responsibility to go to Jesus Christ and say, well, look, I'm sending y'all to Jesus Christ. And 
not to a sorcerer, to some pagan idol or something, but I, I want you to go to Jesus Christ. For some reason, this century know who Jesus is, and he sings sends to Jesus for them to tell him to ask for help for his servant. Okay. The messengers are to seek him earnestly and formally on his behalf. Now, when you send someone, you have to be careful of who you're sending. I think with all of the preachers or all of the people that Christ sends, he chooses the one to send because can they deliver that message faithfully the way that it should be given? What type person are you sending? And Solomon talks about sending a fool with a note. Uh, can a person deliver a message? And that's why there are different preachers and delivery systems. And can you not add to it or take away from it, but present it in the right way? So you have to watch who's representing or you sending a message by. The centurion's approach to Christ is not casual, but committed and respectful. So. He's respectful of who Christ is, and he's committed to what Christ believes in. And there's other people that are committed to other people's religion and what they believe in. There was another one, Cornelius, and you remember Cornelius gave much alms and he prayed, uh, so forth, to the Jewish God, to the God of heaven. So he believed and he gave to these people, and here the centurion. He must believe in them, and he was a good employee or whatever, because go back up to this verse, it says, uh, when he has sent him, he says, they came to Jesus and asked him to do this. He says, for he loveth our nation, and he built us a synagogue. So he wasn't prejudiced. He wasn't of the same uh, creed or uh, nationality of they was, but he loved his people. You could tell whether we have unity in this nation by some of the political leaders of the different nations or ethnics we have or the different races, let's just say it that way, whether that person really loved people of the opposite race or not. And this guy had built them synagogues or whatever. So he wasn't biased. He wasn't racially prejudiced. He was a respectful person. He says he desires a blessing and to secure it he knows he has to d demonstrate earnest commitment. So he know how faith works. You remember Naaman. Naaman didn't really know how faith works or whatever because remember he came to Elijah. He thought Elijah was going to make a big deal out of it or whatever. Elisha. He thought Elisha was going to make a big deal of him coming and do a whole lot of hocus pocus or whatever. But Elisha told him, we'll go worship. Jordan seven times or whatever you know he didn't do but after what Naaman paid respects but here this centurion he came with respect or he sent the people with respect to convey the centurion's faithful attitude the messengers have to present the centurion's request carefully and accurately to Jesus to heal the servant in it and if I've told you just now as I'm in this bullet point here and that's what about being a servant of Jesus Christ. That's why I say, when you go about going to all nations, witnessing to all nations, do we know how to say what the Word of God says? 
what his message really says, not skew what he says. That's why sometimes I say, well, don't try to tell him about the Sabbath or don't teach. In other words, something you don't know how to present or understand, don't try to present it to someone else because they can tell whether you understand that or you actually believe that. And just like whether you're actually living what you're living in, that's why I say people can see this is a hypocritical nation, has hypocritical leaders, and a lot of their churches are hypocritical church leaders and apostate. You can see these things, and people aren't blind, and even the secular people see these things. Uh, the centurion does not act in a general or uh, indirect way that would be unclear. The messages are to be detailed and clear of, as to what a convey, as to what the centurion is expected and what has happened. And that's why I ask God to help me present the message with simplicity and with accuracy, but I still can't make you understand it. I have to depend on God to give you an understanding of it. I'm just a, a, a body. I'm just a voice speaking for the Lord. That's why I wonder about it when it says Moses waxed eloquent in speech in the book of Acts. But when in, in the book of Exodus and earlier, when, when Moses said that he couldn't speak and he needed Aaron to speak for him, what was the thing there. It's it's a lot of nuances to that sentence, but let me not spend my time there. They present the centurion's request, centurion's request enthusiastically and promptly as the text indicates. So they were happy to say it and the way they were saying it, Jesus really seen that the person that had sent them was a genuine person as to how the employees were that were delivering this message. Can I say that? Mm -hmm. Sometimes people in the church, uh, people that are under certain pastors or leaders, they can tell what type preacher or leader they have by the disciples, by the people in the church, by the members of the church. That's why I say you represent this church when you go away from here. So don't live any kind of life. Don't do any kind of thing. Don't say any kind or live any kind of way because if you represent yourself as a child of God, don't cause God's name to be blasphemed. And that's why the sword never left David's house because by David's actions and what he did, he showed that, no, I'm not a child of God. So God says, now, because you've sinned here, now, I'm going to forgive you for sinning and transgressing me. i put your sin away, but the sword, the consequences of what you did will never leave your house. The consequences of what we're doing, we better act like children of God everywhere. That's supposed to be part of our nature, who we are, or what we are. They were committed and faithful in carrying out this responsibility. How faithful and how committed are you to the word of God? Are you servants of God? Are you actually, everywhere you go, does, is this message, uh, is this body of beliefs part of what you are or what you live? Do you live and die this? Do you believe this? 
that's what the people realized when they were trying to find a way to trap Daniel. They said, well, it's going to have to be according or through his word that we trap him. Because if you are a hypocrite, if you like most Americans and most Christians in this nation, you can lay this aside and fight and kill and lie and steal and commit adultery and do all kinds of things and rob God and not do anything because why? You're not fully committed to that. You're not steadfast, immovable in the faith. You're not believing God consistently. You have to get to that diehard state for God you live and for God you die. That servant mentality, as Jesus said, well, I've been sent to do the will of the Father, so what I want doesn't matter. Like I said, this is to send me over. I'm already over five minutes, and I should have known. We'll continue this another time.